0: Your first summer in the East Coast?
1: Um, no, uh, moving
0: since I moved here. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how are you dealing so far?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I'm from Florida, so like the humidity is not bad, but like just not having air conditioning everywhere I go is so strange to me. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's the problem. This far north, like a lot of people, since it's not that long of a time, mm-hmm. just won't have the air conditioning built into the buildings, especially like older
0: buildings it's expensive to do the wall mounted ones yeah well cool so the podcast is recording as of now ah. um i tend to do that i tend to just jump in um because it's sort of the it's a more raw more natural conversational style um so i'm chris i'm here with charity and james and jordan um and we're about to philosophize about all sorts of stuff are we i think so okay. did you
3: did you not get the memo no, but that's good probably
0: Good, good <laughs> um, So so yeah, you're listening to I think this is going to be InterVR Or State of Singularity One or the other, we're going to go in the, both directions anyways um, But very quickly, Charity, introduce yourself What are you up to these days?
1: Okay, so my name is Charity Everett I'm currently a participant in the Oculus Launchpad program. I'm working on a musical VR experience um, based off of a song by this group called Sales. Um, It's going to be in a world that's made out of origami, um, creating sandbox environments while moving you through a narrative of what a breakup feels like. I'm going to actually physically make um, the origami and then 3D scan it and put it into the world and create an interactive place that you can play inside of.
0: Can you explain to me with words what a breakup feels like?
1: (laughs) So um, the way that it starts, you're going to be floating above the surface of a paper moon. Um, So that's kind of like when you feel like you're all alone you're not exactly sure what happened. And then um, that world is going to fold up into a paper forest with um, beautiful woodland creatures. And that's when you're like, you know, kind of remembering with rose-colored glasses, all the great things about the relationship, um, and then that's going to melt away with tears when you hit the reality that it's over, but then um, at the very end, there's going to be a sun that's going to be rising when you're like getting through it.
0: Is that, 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 does that represent the rebound? You know, someone caught the <laughs> rebound? or <laughs>
1: I don't know if it's so much the rebound as much as once you're past the rebound stage and you're like, finally... Good.
0: Okay. Okay. Cool. That's that's really unique. I've never heard of anyone trying to visualize that state of being, you know, after a breakup. That's Where did you get that? Where did that come from?
1: Um, so, the actual song that I'm using is from this band that I heard on Spotify, and I just really like the song. It's the most melancholy sounding breakup song I've ever listened to in my life and I just kind of like stuck a pin in it and they came to town a couple months ago for a concert and I kind of like cornered them in the back of area and I showed them my VR and I got them to sign over the rights to the songs. Whoa! (laughs) That's how you do it. That's awesome. How I roll.
0: (laughs) I like your stuff. Um, how did you get involved in VR in the first place? Where, where, where that, what's that story like?
1: So this was back this past September and I went to a, um, a meetup that was being run in the area by someone who had just gotten involved in the VR community and she just uploaded her first, um, 360 video to YouTube and I had I have a DK one that somebody had given me a few years ago and I played with it a little bit And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool And then I just threw it in a drawer and never really messed with it again Mm. Um, but then She took out her phone and she pulled up her YouTube channel and she stuck it in this cardboard thing and she handed it to me And I put it up to my face and I was standing in her freaking living room and it was just kind of like there was no going back after that, and I didn't sleep for a month, and I just got totally obsessed. A couple days later, the um, Kaleidoscope Film Fest was in town, and so I volunteered there because I didn't want to spend $25, and then I got to try all the like really, really cool stuff, and by then I was like, in over my head.
0: Sweet. That's awesome. Um, whoa, that's a, such a cool story. Where do you see yourself five years from now? Where, where do you think this journey that now you're jumping into is going to take you?
1: Um, well, a couple different directions. In one end of it, I definitely like the idea of continuing down the path of music. Um, for me, music has always been a very visceral and uh visual experience listening to it so i like the idea of actually being able to inject somebody into an emotion and just letting them like live in it and play in it Mm -hmm. and i think that as um vr becomes more um like more interactive and more real and more of a, a full body experience i think that playing around in there is something I'd be interested in. Um, On the other end of it, I'm also working on a collaboration. Uh, I can't say too much about it because there's a lot that's still up in the air, but um, a collaboration about doing like a public arts type of project. And um, if we can get that going, that will probably be a few years because it would be a a major artwork.
0: Whoa, I'm excited. That sounds exciting. Um, All right, so I've been having this discussion with James and Jordan back and forth for the past couple days. And I'm going to have you come in, into this discussion and I'm going to start with this question. How do you define experience?
1: In the context of virtual reality?
0: Let's... We'll let, the first thing that comes to mind.
1: Some Something that has happened to you that has imprinted itself onto your brain and you can always go back to. Wow.
0: Wow. So here's the thing. I've been trying to figure out what qualia is, or where it comes from. This so so that uh, and, and, and and again, it's like one of those things that's like it's 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 weird. It's slippery for me to try to like even define because you say it really well, James. Like you have a grasp. Like you can like you like you like you know what it is. But it's like yeah. Maybe for
2: for the listeners, we can give a quick overview
0: of sort of the discussion that we've
2: we've been having, uh, which is kind of uh so so qualia our base is the first person experience of something so like when you see the color red um it's the redness of it it's you experiencing the redness of it and so the question is where does that exist or why does that exist like how does that come about um and you know we could trace like we have all these explanations about you know the atoms that make up a red thing reflecting everything except the red wavelength and the red wavelength You know travels across from that thing and hits your retina and the retina sends signals back to the brain and The brain processes this stuff and triggers You know some some uh, part of your brain that then says oh, that's a red thing But still none of that explains you Experiencing the particular redness of that thing like the redness is not related to the wavelength Right. And so the question is, and this is uh, called the hard problem of of consciousness, with a capital H, you know, the hard problem, like where does this come from? What's it about? Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's something that, you know, we've been talking about, we were at this optometry conference and we asked a few uh, professors who teach optometry about this. And they they have some interesting perspectives because they think very much about this because they're aware of all of the sort of biological mechanisms of vision, but it's all that sort of stops before it gets to perception
0: in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so and so I've I've been thinking about that lately in the context of VR, um, because because it seems like. Can can do you think quality can, qualia can be communicated through VR experiences? Like is that or is this something that is more visceral? Is that like lower level that we could we couldn't even try to like replicate or or for, or piece together or even explain like you know, in some, in terms of using the medium to visualize it? Like
2: I think what's consistent between us is the not qualia parts of it. Like when you experience red, we don't know if that's we're experiencing the same thing you know and that'll still be true in vr if we sit in some vr experience we don't know how people are actually perceiving it it's totally based on you know one what's going on in their brain but also two this sort of completely as of now unknowable translation from physical stuff into perceiving it Hmm. so it's it's, it seems like one of those questions that we don't, like, we're not even begun on answering it. Yeah. We don't, we don't have anywhere to start.
0: As a tool, like, do you think that, like, VR is a tool to, because um, I, I look at VR as a tool for many things, but one tool that I see it as is, is, a, is a portal into the human mind. Um, and I wonder if, if this portal down the line can take us further and further and further down to answer those, those fundamental questions could like do you think it could ever like theoret- theoretically or hypothetically ever get to the point where given enough technology perhaps neural interfacing perhaps um yeah better brain imaging will be able to go down deeper into what and where that is and why that happens and how it all comes up, comes together
1: i think the question becomes should we Like, do we want everybody to have the same perception of everything? Because I'm sure at some point you could write a piece of AI that could go into somebody's brain and say, oh, well, you know, you're perceiving this differently, this differently, and then switch everything around to where the person's seeing everything the same way. But would that kind of rob us of what makes us beautiful if we're seeing everything the same way?
3: Mm. Well, remember that uh, movie, uh, Ratatouille, the Pixar movie? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I don't know where you're taking this, <laughs> taking
0: this but it was, it's, I like it.
3: Well, it's about um, it's about thinking that there's a, a, a deeper psychological component to it because in the climax of that movie, he you know the rat Remy is making this very simple dish for the food critic, and everyone's like, oh no, it, you know he's gonna he's gonna bash it. You know this is a terrible choice. It's not impressive at all. And then the critic tastes it, and in the movie you see that he immediately gets brought back to his childhood and his mother making him this simple dish and all the feelings and references that that evokes in him. And that's why he loves it so much. And as to this question of, you know, the experience of whatever, of red or a landscape or music, um, it's, it's, I think it's just the psychological component. It's what it means to you. It's whatever references or, or triggers it activates in your brain. Mm-hmm. So even if it's very mundane, like even if you see like um, a red curtain, and I don't know, some thought or memory flows across your mind about something about your grandmother or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's something that's beyond the simple, um, you know, visual stimulus. It takes on takes on uh, content. You know, it takes on Context and you can have that, you can have that in any, uh, I think, in any media like, um, I mean, two dimensional, three dimensional. I think in VR, hopefully, people are going to make, you know, experiences that allow them to um, tap into really intense experiences Hmm. or memories of other things that it evokes. Mm-hmm. And maybe that will like make VR all the more compelling than just let's say you know a, a video on a on a screen somewhere.
0: Are you thinking of something like Inception, like giving people uh, this experience where like where where they develop catharsis on their own or the perception of catharsis catharsis on their own?
3: Well, it's more so that, um, and it's not it's not necessary for this, but I think it's easier to. Um, it's easier to provide or to elicit uh, an intense feeling in somebody or an intense emotional state mm-hmm. the more they feel immersed in the thing that they're seeing or experiencing. If, they're, if they feel distant from it, like a passive observer, it, it, it might still have deep meaning for them, and so they still feel deeply about it. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the more you can put them in it mm-hmm. as a participant as, as opposed to... Uh, just an observer, and have them be an active participant instead of a passive one, um, it's more likely to trigger those kind of connections or, or the uh, the associations with strong memories.
0: Wow. I think. For you as a creator,
3: like, what are you more
0: compelled, Charity, <laughs> what are you more compelled uh, to create or what sort of emotions or feelings are you trying to evoke out of the people that try your experiences?
1: So... It really depends on the piece of music that I'm working with because I'm I'm kind of reimagining a music video. So I'm more, I connect to the piece of music and then I I kind of come up with the idea for the experience around it. So, so far I did, my past one was more of like a psychedelic experience. This one's more of a breakup. Um, I guess maybe just anything that really like maybe if it's the words or the way the song sounds, that to me like creates a visual reaction is something that I'd be interested in making. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. When you hear music, do you do you visualize it in a specific way, consistent way? Or is it more, more like, is it evoking uh, emotions or ideas?
1: I would say a little bit of both um, because it does invoke ideas, but it's always very visual, but at the same time, it's very nar- narrative driven. And that's just kind of the way my mind works. And I think that's I'm kind of tailor fit for VR in this way, because the most, um, like the biggest emotional events that have happened in my life, my actual recreation of them is more of a visual representation of what that event felt like to me versus like the actual event and what it was itself. So like say something like, You know, really like something horrible happened to me like when I think about that event I think about like somebody walking up and kicking me in the stomach like versus like the actual event itself Mm -hmm. So I feel kind of the same way with music
0: Hmm. You sort of develop these like uh, parallel analogies to the to the memory, right? Oh, yeah.
1: So like when I think back over my life, I can like run back a bunch of like analogies of what these things felt like to me, and oh. to me that's more real than whatever actually truly happened. Well,
0: so in, in in a way, do you see the the analogy as the vehicle of communication, like uh, like if putting the analogy in VR? So you don't perhaps you don't want to give people the uh, ability to peek into your world, to your memory, um, uh, but perhaps you create the analogy that in, that gives you that the feeling of the, the memory, perhaps, right. or, or are you more compelled to like drop people into the memory itself and then let them make their own analogies uh, later on? What, are, what do you think is be- more effective?
1: I think the beauty of of a medium such as this is the fact that it doesn't have to be something that's so real and something that's so personal. So if you can, you can take the, the feeling and the analogy and you can remove it from the actual event and just create, um, I guess a representation of that analogy, then somebody can be like, Oh, well this reminds me of this time. And then they can kind of, you know, maybe attach it to something that that's happened to them. And then, so it'll become that much more real and impactful to them versus Mm -hmm. trying to put them in an event that always happened because there's always going to be a disconnect where person might go, oh, well this would never happen to me or I never would have reacted this way Mm -hmm. or I wouldn't have felt this way about it. It's more giving you the feeling and allowing you to attach that feeling to whatever memories you may have.
0: Do you think VR can be a medium of mind control more powerful than the TV, the radio, the smartphone, just because of it is immersiveness?
1: Of course. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. How, Give me, give me the worst case scenario of how it could be abused 10 years from now.
1: So, have any of you guys ever seen that movie, Maniac?
0: No, no, no. no.
1: Um, have you Elijah Wood made. It was a remake of a movie from the 1970s, and it came out, I think, maybe like 2012, 2013, where the way that they decided to remake it was you were actually, like, it's about, it's a movie about a serial killer who goes around, like, scalping women. Oh, shit. Sure they literally made it like you are the serial killer. So it's first person the entire time, and you're going out at night, and you're stalking and murdering these women. Well, and it's the most disturbing thing I've ever seen in my life.
0: Elijah Wood made, made this movie?
1: Elijah Wood, yeah. Elijah Holy, I didn't
0: think it was yeah. in him. Holy crap. Well, he's probably Wilfred about the... Frodo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that journey with the ring really changed it. <laughs> it
2: really did.
1: The dark side. <laughs> Jeez. Well, no, he actually just recently started a um, like a, a VR horror movie company so I, I would imagine that he was drawn oh, to that project that. and yeah. yeah that's
2: interesting holy It'll be good to watch that to get kind of some insight into where he's heading with all that yeah, <laughs> yeah it's yeah. disturbing <laughs> yeah. yeah it is
1: <laughs> um, but I could foresee like if you created that type of environment <laughs> where the person is actually interacting and like they're going out and like stalking and scalping women alive at night um, it would be so real it would kind of be like rewiring a person's brain and would probably make them feel compelled to go out and do that
0: like desensitization, like they would become desensitized to the act
1: I wonder what the effects of that
2: are like is, is putting people in that situation exposing them to it and desensitizing them to it and making them sort of have less barriers to doing something like that or is putting a whole bunch of people in that situation like opening their eyes to um, how that might come about, and people, more people will be thinking about how you can prevent it, or, or like, I, I, it seems like there's not a, it's not easy to predict exactly what something like that might, how it might actually affect
1: people. Right. I mean, I definitely agree that some people might like be completely turned off by it, but there are some people that might have like just it might trigger some kind of tingle in the back of their mind where they just want to do it again and again and I think it's irresponsible to put things like that out there knowing that people could react to it in a range of ways
0: so that's that's an interesting this is a good this is going to be a good discussion I like it I like where we're going um because I think no I, I was like oh, this is good this is good I like it because um you know so so I've heard and this like news pundits and stuff, they talked about like, you know, they'll look at Battlefield 3 or one of those, you know, first-person shooter games and they'll say, whoa, look, look what we're doing. We're teaching our kids how to become, you know, mass serial killers with AR-15. And then and then other people will say, well, no, these are outlets for them to vent, for them to release, for them to, you know, find a place to, um, you know, yeah, to, to find a place to, to release their anger uh, or a medium, you know, and, and so...
2: This might be different because something like Battlefield 3, that's not similar to feeling like you're killing somebody. Oh. Um, you know? Like like it's not a replacement for that. But in VR? But <laughs> VR it could be. If it's really realistic and you have agency well, and you're making the decision to do it and you s- visually see the person suffering as a result, you know, it, it might be a more direct uh, yeah. Replacement, I guess, or analog.
0: Well, we could filter out the psychopaths that way. <laughs> you know what that actually. Ooh, dude, that could be a <laughs> weird thing. Like, imagine if we like, it, like, you know how you have to take the SAT or like those those tests, and so instead of the SAT, it'll be like a VR simulation, and the kids have no idea what the simulation is, but depending on how they do,
3: you know, you you'll be able to you know put together a psychological profile. Well, that's true. It, it's interesting. It's like most of and if you ever take like an ethics course or you know an ideology course or something, most of the um, most of the controversies you learn about, you know, these thought experiments have to do with you know ethical dilemmas of you know choosing one option or another when neither option is ideal, and what the right you know what your chosen moral framework would be uh, and different justifications for that, you know, like, there's, um, classical stuff like, you know, the trolley problem, or, you know, would you kill a million people to save a billion, all, all that stuff, and, um, yeah, the problem has always been that they're just thought experiments, so there's no consequences to it, there are no, there are no um, visceral, uh, there, there, there's, there's no feedback. Right, it's mm-hmm. just your imagination. If you put somebody into one of these moral dilemmas in VR and like maybe force them to even either pull a switch or not pull a switch and have them witness something, but they felt like they were actually participating, maybe you would get more honest, uh, a more honest picture of what people's true ethics really are. But going back to what you were saying before about like disturbing content, um, I think there's a distinction. To be made between you know being forced to act out somebody else what somebody else is doing, which I don't think VR is, is well suited for because um, if you're in there in the virtual world you don't want to feel like you're a prisoner in this another avatar's body and like they're moving arms and they're walking around and you're just trapped there and not able to influence this avatar that you're in. I don't think that's going to be the issue. I think it will be uh, situations that that present you with pretty controversial choices Mm -hmm. or pretty terrible choices of, of how to act out in the virtual world and some people will do one thing and other people will do another thing. But it'll give people the opportunity to do pretty disturbing stuff, and I think that's the the real thing. Is there? Do you think that we have to draw a line when when it comes to like?
0: Uh, it seems like we're gonna be in a struggle, a pull and push struggle for free speech in terms of who, what can, we can create with we with VR. Um, it seems to me, it seems to me like I fall more on the part of like letting people do and create whatever they want, no matter how horrifying and monstrous the experience might be, and leaving the populace up uh, to choose whether they want to experience it or not. The reason being is because I think it's important to know the full spectrum of human thought. You know, no matter how monstrous it is and see if we can understand it or learn from it or... What what
2: if I can make an experience that reliably gives people PTSD, for instance?
0: (sighs) Then we have a legal system where people will, like, sue you, right?
2: What if I release it anonymously on the internet, you know?
0: Man, do you, you and your like loopholes. Like, lo- oh, it's, it's, that's a good loophole. That's a good loophole. Like that would,
2: we're gonna be in that situation soon. Like I, th- I think just horror games are gonna give people PTSD.
0: Probably uh, some, okay. some people, some of the time. I won't do them. All right, but probably here's it. the thing. <laughs> <laughs> what what, what, if, what, what But here's the thing. Like, but but where do you draw the distinction of like something where like you're getting some value out of like if I wanted to create a an experience where like, look everybody, this is the experience of the most violent things that are currently done to women around the world, like people, like people throw an acid in the faces of women, people, gang rapes, um, you know, like murders and stuff like this. These, these things happen to women right now and you're going to experience it from the perspective of the victim, you know, and that might give people PTSD, but like that doesn't negate the fact that these things are real and that this is reality that we should be able to highlight because if we're not aware of reality, that we're not making choices based on the, I want on, on the on the state of the human condition where we
3: live, right? But I actually had a conversation with somebody, exact uh, about this very subject, because a lot of people are really enthusiastic about VR because they see it as a empathy. Uh, yeah, because they see it as an empathy machine, or that's how it's called. It's a it's a, a conduit to in- encourage people or facilitate empathy between between. Uh, individuals that otherwise would never be put in similar situations to those that they would you know be experiencing um, and my point was like, there there's almost a little bit too much enthusiasm around that but putting people in, into terrible situations um, so they, they can feel the pain and horror and suffering of somebody a stranger that they don't know um, because it's like it's not just that one thing. Um, there are dozens of experiences that people want to expose the world to so that larger society or the mainstream society gets a better understanding or starts paying attention to it. Give me an and, example. Give me well, I mean, you just mentioned, you know, um, really terrible mistreatment. Well, like the New York Times,
2: uh, you
3: know, the first thing they released. The place Yeah. I mean, that,
2: that's, that's the first big example of I guess VR journalism where
3: you put people in other people's shoes and try to give them that experience. Yeah, and I, I think it there's a danger that if all of these people who are very, you know, of course, extremely well intentioned and really want to draw attention to this to a a subject or a cause that they care deeply about, that they're going to start delving into what will become like suffering porn. And it will cause and I think it will cause of people to experience empathy fatigue like they'll be exposed to so much suffering or they'll be pressured to being to being exposed to so much suffering that they'll just be like enough enough i don't want to see anymore you know i just want to live my life i don't want to be put in the shoes of some some person getting killed by a warlord or some person getting acid thrown in their face or some starving child enough you know i have enough problems in my life I don't want to deal with other people's problems like this. Yeah, doesn't need to be that. here's the thing: I feel so. The reason, so this is, let's have it back and forth. In charity,
0: feel free to jump in whenever you like. Because I think that the as the medium stands today, the majority of people are working on things that will make you happy, that are triggering dopamine and serotonin, that are straight up, um, yeah, games and entertainment. And I feel like you know. Because the majority of things are going in that direction, I'm personally more compelled to go in the opposite. Um, because, you know, that, that direction leads to escapism in my mind, you know, or a certain form of sca- escapism, right? And I think that um, maybe VR, maybe, maybe there has to be something or some guideline, or, or maybe, I, I don't know, but it seems like. It can't get to that point where we're having like VR suffering porn or something like that That would be bad But I don't know where where to stop, you know
1: I would say that it's important to make things like this so that people who are working for the UN and heads of state Have to experience them because I think that they're the people ultimately whose decisions Matter and I think that I don't think we should stop making it for them as far as whether the average everyday person would want to watch those things, um, I can't imagine they would. I mean, we, we kind of shut ourselves off to so much bad stuff that's going on in the world. We're so selective in the things that we care about anyway. I don't see anybody who's not really interested in getting fatigue from something that they're not going to experience at already, all. There's already,
2: you know, millions of hours of horrible videos on YouTube right. that you could spend the rest of your life looking at if you
3: wanted. And exactly. like most people don't. And that's a really good point. The people who really need to experience empathy in a visceral way are the ones calling the shots and making the decisions that cause the suffering. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of people are saying, you know, they're not going to watch it, but let's let's show normal people how awful this is, in the hopes that the outrage will flow uphill somehow. Mm-hmm. And we know that that doesn't always work that effectively, but um, yeah, I mean, the potential for it is there, which is why it's a it's something worth talking about. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, well, I do know that they yeah. did. I think they showed the displaced at one of the UN meetings. Okay. They were showing it to that heads yeah, we, there. We met
2: somebody who made a VR experience and was showing it to the UN.
0: Yeah, Remember that? yeah. Who was that was that Chris Purified? No, that was Chris, Chris. his friend. Was his friend? Yeah, I think I think. Not, not.
2: The guy who was also super hyped to talk about the singularity. That's what it was.
0: He, he talked about the singularity. Yep. Yep, yeah. yep, 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 yep. <laughs> <laughs> what? So, so, are you familiar with the singularity and what's going on?
1: As, no. James
0: Laha, it. this is where you come in.
1: <laughs>
0: so,
2: yeah, Chris and I, uh, and Jordan, and a lot of our friends, uh, you know, especially being in Silicon Valley, which we sort of think of as the center of all this, um, have been talking about the singularity for a little bit. And it means different things to different people, but um, my my sort of personal definition is, is or, or, or kind of background on it, is that it seems like technology is accelerating exponentially. That every new piece of knowledge or, or piece of technology that we get makes us more effective, which means that we're even more effective when we go to get new technology, and that builds on itself. And so the idea is that at some point, you know, as assuming this exponential trend continues, there's going to be some point at which human life does not look noticeably like it does today, where the rate of progress gets so fast that we're not able to kind of predict past it and things will change so much that we, we can't anticipate what's going to happen. And so, you know, obviously the big question if if we just take as an assumption that all oh, that's true and it's gonna happen. Then the question is, well, when do we hit that point where it's, you know, um, at least from the scale of a human lifetime, um, where, you know, with respect to the scale of a human lifetime, when do we hit that point where things are just going to drastically, radically change? And so, you know, different people have different ideas about that. Um, if you're in Silicon Valley, you sort of, and I think Boston, it would be another one of these centers, right, where where a lot of very um, interesting, powerful technology is being worked on, and in all very different fields, um, in computing, in uh, you know uh, machine intelligence, machine learning, um, in biology, and any single one of these could produce technologies which drastically change how we live. Um, and it seems like the timeline is something like decades, you know, anywhere from 10 to 100 years where like how most humans live will not be like it was for the last you know, 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 millions of, of years. Um, and so the, what we spend a lot of time talking about is what are the implications of some of these technologies um, what's the what is the transition going to look like if there is one? Yeah. Um, you know, is this dangerous for humanity or for some portions of humanity? Um, you know, will the very powerful get ahead and start enhancing their cognition and remain ahead ever after and you know Have even more power, you know, will power sort of centralize even more? Yeah. Um, so a lot of it's sort of you know, interesting and exciting, and it's new technology. But then there's this other half where it's like, well, what does that actually mean for people?
0: Yeah. And I, in my mind, I there, I make I hesitate. I make no mistake when I look at VR. VR is an exponential technology, and in my mind, it's one of the technologies that will be able to that we can harness right now to be able to equalize the playing field. When all the oligarchs and one percenters have the other technologies to enhance their cognition or to You know produce drone and robot armies that all of a sudden they won't need militaries human militaries to defend them You know and they won't give a single fuck what they do because who's gonna go up and stand up to a drone or You know robot army that can shoot you from a thousand miles away, you know Mm -hmm. And so and so the idea for me at least is that by allowing more and more people to become aware of VR and utilizing the tool to enhance experience for others um, then perhaps we can create a more unified hive mind of humans that are more in tune with reality um, and in tune with the times and in tune with the, with the problems that are facing us. And perhaps we can create better solutions. Again, it's like we're using VR to create, to build. It's like, it's like how James said, it's like we're creating the technologies that help us create better technologies. And VR is that right now. You know, Mm -hmm. and I think, you know, you saw, we saw a lot of that as like education in VR for kids who are just now being
2: born is going to be crazy. Like if you grow up just playing with molecules like they're building blocks and you sort of intuitively naturally understand the dynamics there, Mm -hmm. you might get a lot more done than someone who stared at textbooks all day and had to memorize, you know, the the periodic table <laughs> versus like seeing those things as objects that you know about Absolutely. you know in a first person way yeah. and so it seems like that kind of stuff is what's helping us unlock even better technologies right um, but it, they're also powerful technologies to control people um, right. as well
3: and the yeah and the critique of of or the uh, the counterpoint to what you said, Chris, is that VR could just be a new medium through which the powerful interests placate the masses, you know, and uh, um, allow us to all achieve some simulated instant gratification mm-hmm. and you know distract ourselves with virtual. Whatever. Well, VR go, new, new price.
1: But that's the double edged sword of the internet, too. Like, a yeah. lot of people are using it to placate themselves, and a lot of people are using it to educate themselves. And I would think that if you're intrinsically a curious person, uh, you're going to use VR in a different way than somebody who's easily placated.
2: Yeah, it's not like binary. Uh, right. I think the history of all these techniques, books, radio, yeah. is yeah. the same. You know? yeah. Yeah. Radio and TV and books distracted a whole bunch of people. But it also empowered a whole bunch of people and educated a whole bunch of people, yeah. and it's not a binary one or the other. Like it's better at both. All but the time.
0: but but I think what's different this time around, though, is the fact that we're going to put people in new in, in in new realities. Like like all of a sudden, the reality we're in, where we can see the world through our own eyes all the time, and we're like, all right, this is this is where I'm at. That's gonna be. We're gonna we're gonna transcend that, and and I don't mean that in like ooh, you know, like like. Like we're gonna plug ourselves into machines. Like it's more, it's more ground level stuff. Like, like AR, like uh, AR glasses that we're gonna that are gonna replace your phone. You know, it's like how I can't even imagine life without my phone anymore. And it's gonna get to the point where I won't be able to imagine life without my AR glasses or my you know MR glasses, whatever you call it, and whatever company or group of people hold, have the power to pull the switch on that. Um, and pair that with like artificial intelligence algorithms that will like look into your every thought pattern or every plate thing that you, thing that you look at with your eye tracking um, sensors, and they'll be able to put you in self affirmation bubbles, or they'll be oh, this or this AI AI algorithm will make sure that you never look at information that would otherwise inspire some sort of curiosity out of you. You know, I think that's that's the problem. Like that before, you know, the information came out of this this sort of this little drip drop faucet you know now it's just it's like now it's like just just, just a giant you know hose water hose Um, but it's gonna come to a point where like that water hose untapped water hose is gonna be a lot more curated or or, you know it's and so it's to me that's the fear the fear is that you know we're gonna have this amazing technology that could be mind expanding but instead you know the the rich and powerful will use to like Jordan said, like hate the, the masses. Mm. Um, and so, and so it's, I think it's important that we, we use it for, um, for highlighting the truth as much as we can, no matter how ugly that is. And, you know, there might be consequences where there's going to be a whole subsection or a subculture of people who are going to like suffering porn, but hopefully it won't be the majority of people. And, and, the, and, and a good chunk of the people will actually act on that. Um, Cause I think that, and this is my this is my thinking. I think we're at a point in human life on Earth where we are faced with uh, with plenty of exponential problems, and you know climate change being one of them, where like the methane underneath the Siberian permafrost is being released at a faster and faster rate, and that scares the shit out of me because no one can put this, put the stopgap on that. And so, what do you? What do we do? I feel like we have to fight fire with fire. Somehow, we gotta use exponential tools to fight exponential problems. Um, and and this this is where VR comes in. Um, this is where 3D printing comes in. This is where open AI and efforts come in. Um, and synthetic biology and things like that. Um, m- my thinking is that if we allow the next million Albert Einsteins to be created through VR headsets, those Albert Einsteins are going to create a synthetic biology solution that will put out a tree that will absorb a hundred times more carbon dioxide than regular trees and grow ta- grow a hundred times faster, or some other some other more you know, efficient solution that I can come up with right now. Um, that's that's the hope because. Uh, otherwise otherwise then I think we're just gonna have to go to Mars and start all over again
1: until we destroy Mars and, until we destroy Mars but then we got, we'll move
0: on to Venus I, I'd rather go to Venus though if I, if I had to choose between Mars and Venus I'd rather have a cloud city in Venus than to have a, a colony in Mars because the, the cloud in city in Venus first of all the gravity would be much more closer to Earth. And also, if you find a sweet spot, um, there's a sweet spot where like, you can have the city floating with, you know, w- uh, in relation to the sun or something like that.
2: No, and, like there, the weather is actually- a spot in, the, in Venus's
0: atmosphere
2: that has Earth temperature and pressure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's corrosive. Oh. Right? So you have to have your own air, and there are no materials currently oh. known that could like, live God through that.
0: God damn it, I, I
2: didn't read
1: that fine print. <laughs> <laughs> but
2: if you had a really good balloon that could withstand that, then you know the outside would be the right temperature and pressure. So.
1: But you still couldn't breathe the air. And you couldn't it? go down to the
0: surface or anything like
1: that. That sounds miserable. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming what we what we might end up doing to the Earth, it might be the yeah. next best
3: thing though. Well yeah, it's, I think what Neil deGrasse Tyson has always said that if things if conditions ever get so bad on Earth that we feel compelled to go to Mars to try and terraform terraform Mars then why don't we just terraform Earth again to a livable condition? Because we would have to fight
0: billions of people who are ignorant and stupid and will believe you. Oh, I don't, I don't think so. I, I think so. I think you so. wouldn't have to
1: fight the billions, you'd have to fight the people feeding information to the billions. Yeah, there you
0: go. And they're drone well, audience. Well, who's rich enough to go to Mars anyway? Well, Uh us, (laughs) at some point us, that's the plan, I mean, Charity, by the way, you're more than welcome to join us, we're starting an asteroid mining company, we're calling it Space Cowboy Industries Okay And it's going to be, we're going to be mining for platinum, so Peter Diamantes, you better hold on to your shorts, sir, because we're going to compete against you Um, Calling calling him out Calling you out, (laughs) calling you out, Peter (laughs) Diamantes Bring out your best homeboys, because yeah. we're not playing around. Um, it's, we're, we're testing our first prototypes with um, Nerf rockets right now. Yep, yep, yep. It's got to start small. It's got to start somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> they don't get very far, <laughs> but, uh, but we're getting there. We're getting there. I mean, we know people that have robotic arms. We know pe- we know people that know VR, and we can do telerobotics, right? That's all we need. You we know, right? people are launching stuff into space. Who do we know? The Space VR guys. Oh yeah, yeah. Ryan, Ryan Holmes, call me. We got, I got a good idea for you.
3: <laughs> Fuck tons of money, dude. I, so i have going back to VR, though. I've another question for you, Charity. One of the things about VR, which is really cool, and also very dangerous, like you said, it can be one way or the other. Um, it's a much more intense experience, so content creators have to be cognizant of what they're going to put through. The you know what they're putting people through when they're trying to create an environment that elicits an emotional response. Um, so you're doing something personal um, that is very melancholy and represents you know feelings of sadness that then transition to kind of hope or you know positivity about the future or something. Um, but Art that's done really well, you know, it there's up until now there's always been a a buffer between the art and the artist and then and the audience, right? Because there's air in between the piece and the observer, and through that buffer zone, you know, all kinds of interpretations can emerge, and then the the audience can interpret or can accept that art for however. They want to feel about it. In, in VR, you have much more, uh, much more uh, direct control over what that person is experiencing. Much more direct control over their senses in a kind of like a in a in a way that's where you're like almost jacking into them. So you have access to the you know the entire um, their, their, the entire spectrum of what they can hear, of what they can see maybe not what they can feel and touch yet, but definitely a sense of place, or a sense of, a sense of uh, uh, being somewhat yeah, proprioception, uh, feeling present in a, in a situation. So those are tools that artists haven't been able to work with before. Mm-hmm. Um, and in many ways, working in VR is um, having an extremely captive audience. You know, the person the only way they can really look away or detach themselves from the situation is to yank the headset off and just X And We always do have people,
2: we demo a lot. So we demo to a lot of people who've never seen VR. And sometimes they just get to this point where they're like, can I get out of here? i <laughs> <laughs> you allowed to be out of this now? Like, like, yes, you can take the headset off whenever you want. But like,
1: <laughs> the, the default
2: position is like, people are like, they're in it. And they're waiting for it to be done. And they're
3: like, you know, they're in that moment. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. They, when people get immersed, they sometimes forget, or it doesn't occur to them immediately, that they can just take the headset off at any yeah. time. You see people come come freaking out at some of these things, like the, yeah. the grandpa
2: in, in Brookhaven experiment. Have you seen that oh, video? Oh, yeah. He can't reload, and he starts trying to fight the zombies <laughs> with his fist,
3: which aren't working. <laughs> so so that just take it off and freak it out. So my roundabout question to you would be then, as somebody who's creating art, what do you think um, what do you think the extra responsibilities are for an artist and what are you most excited about given this new power that you have?
1: When you're talking about a medium and an art form that's so new, I think it's difficult to talk about responsibilities um, because that's kind of, to me, that's kind of like putting up barriers when there should be none at the moment. We have absolutely no idea how this could evolve in the next five to ten years. So I shy away from, I mean, if we're talking about it strictly from an artistic perspective, I shy away from saying that an artist has a responsibility to create a certain thing. Um, what was the other part of the question, though?
3: Well, What makes you most excited uh, about having you know, these new tools available to you?
1: I think for me, um, coming at this from a digital media perspective and thinking that I was going to be a filmmaker, uh, I always felt like film was something that I would kind of have to settle on. Um, I mean, it had a hundred years worth of rules. And even though it didn't exactly fit the way that my mind worked, I felt like it was something that I could work with as far as expression. Uh, The fact that with VR, there's literally no barrier between what you create and the person who's experiencing it. And it's something that they actually get to live inside of, I think is the most exciting portion. And especially the fact that you can create a world completely out of nothing, something that could never actually exist in a real world and actually have somebody inhabit it. this kind of takes me to like one of those like 2 a.m. conversations, Google Hangout conversations I was having with a friend of mine, where it was just it was too much for a 2 a.m. conversation, where he started talking about um, how the the worlds that we create in VR are actually like we actually literally create them like on a microscopic level, like anything that I create in Unity and save on a flash drive on a very very minuscule level, like that world actually exists like I just created an actual reality and who's to say that I'm not literally like creating a universe that you know people are inhabiting now and that our universe isn't just you know Saved on some micro flash drive somewhere. And if someone decides to delete us, then that's it. You know,
0: oh shit We're going into simulation theory <laughs> um, But before we go there, I think I was gonna ask you like what do you think what are your thoughts on length of time of experience? Do you think that the more you, uh, the, the, the audience spends in there, the more they become sort of, uh, oh, they, be, they, they take more ownership of them being in it? Or do you think that um, you can deliver very, very powerful or just as powerful experiences in short periods of time? So like, what, what do you think about length of time when it comes to delivering a story or a message?
1: Well, at the moment, because VR is something that's so new, I would shy away from anything more than five minutes. My first experience is about five minutes, and I find that people kind of want to check out after about, like, three, three and a half minutes, they start getting self-conscious about having the headset on. And I know that that's something that's just totally, like, right now. Like, in a few years, people are going to be completely okay spending a lot more time. it's definitely different once you have the hand
2: controllers. That, too. I think that that's totally right about the right time if you aren't... Directly interacting with things if you can't sort of explore things which anything on gear VR or DK2 or, or CV1 right now Is going to be like that um, But you know the first thing I spent any substantial time in was Tilt Brush Because I had goals and I could achieve my goals and the best way to achieve those goals was to stay in VR <laughs>
3: mm-hmm.
2: And until that's true for more stuff people are going to be like wow this is cool, but they pretty quickly get used to it
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so I think we're going to be spending longer and longer and longer, but it takes a really long time to make software that's really useful and, and that like actually helps people achieve whatever it is they
0: want to achieve. But the question being, will story, uh, assuming you have agency with your hands in there, will story become more effective the more time you have? Let's let's take the example of Rick and Morty's Roy experience, like li- living a lifetime <laughs> inside of a VR headset, like. Um, you know and, and then and then coming back and you know, and this is like a conversation we had at 3am the other day like we were talking about like what if you, cuz here's the thing you know at some point charity um, i believe um, and i don't know sure about these you. guys but i believe that the greatest threat that artificial intelligence poses, poses to humanity is not artificial intelligence itself it's how humanity will react to the machine economy to the self-driving cars to the automated doctors to automated lawyers automated politicians when all the jobs automated are gone politicians. <laughs> I mean, they, they really do hopefully cuz they really do unless like redundant
2: it'd be
1: more stable
0: Bureaucratic. I
2: mean, <laughs> maybe your automated uh, financial trading is yeah, so automated bureaucrat. That's more stable, but it could be. <laughs>
0: um, but it's gonna get to a point where like you're gonna just have the, a, a, more and more jobs be replaced at a rate that the hum- humans can't can't replace them. Good. Um, and, uh, yes.
1: Why do but, we need to work? Why Why is everyone so married to this idea that we need to work?
0: So you belong with us. You belong with our our, our, our cult <laughs> of, of people. But but the question then becomes like, well, how are socioeconomic structures, structures going to react and you know and hopefully adapt? Collapse. They're going to collapse and there's going to be bloodshed, um, unfortunately. But but the solution in my mind um, can be, and this is something that Jordan alluded to was like the other night. Was like, you know, why don't we just have a, a metaverse where like, assuming the v, the, the technology is mature enough, you you're just and this might be hundreds of years from now, but like, soon the technology is uh, good enough, you're just going to be reliving, reliving lives over and over, just experience after experience, experience after experience. Um, I, mm, what do you think?
1: I don't like the idea of that. Okay. I, I like the idea of us moving into more of a Star Trek future where we don't have to work for money, but we're constantly making an advancements just because we feel fulfilled to make them and we want to... Continue to explore and to grow as a species, but here's the problem. Here's the problem
0: What if what if what if AI gets so smart that all of a sudden no matter what advancements you try to make AI can already make them or already has made them. I think that that's where uh, my solution comes in
2: yeah. and it might, we might even be able to automate art
3: and storytelling
2: and, and No, music. I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, why not
3: because it's not just the end result that matters It's oh, the oh, process it of creation way. Art created by
2: algorithms, uh, people may want to consume that art more than they want to consume art created I by humans. I
1: think people. that that would create a backlash where people would just want to consume things that were created by humans. I, just I, th- because I think that'll happen
2: for a bit, but if it's re- if these things really are more effective...
1: But effective, like, how do you define effectiveness when you're effectiveness talking about art? In, in effectiveness
2: te- a, in, a, in just purely grabbing human attention. Grabbing and keeping human attention. It doesn't have to be um, better art in any sort of philosophical sense or artistic sense. It just has to be better at convincing people to spend their time uh, consuming it. And algor- I-, I think an algorithm could do that. You know, maybe not so much today, but I think it's a possible thing. I, I-, I think, you know, my first thought was that you know when this happens, you know, I, I also want that Star Trek future. And I'm sort of thinking, you know, well, maybe we need less engineers, we need less, you know, lawyers, we need less doctors, we need less of all these things. Yeah, I mean, we're automating engineering, too. You know, I think, I used to think certain careers were safe. I no longer think that. I think no career is safe.
0: Um, Except the massage therapist. Well, Carbon is working on that. Never mind. You've
3: never set one of those all- chairs? Oh, that's right. true. You're right. You're right. Brookstone. You're that right.
0: That whole
2: point of view is like shows how embedded we are in this idea that we have to be useful to other people.
0: Yeah.
2: And that's other people convincing us that we need to be useful to them. When really, we don't, maybe. And it's all about what it is, whatever it is we want to experience for ourselves. And it's not about creating. Um, technology for other people, or creating art for other people. Maybe it's about creating art for ourselves, or
3: creating technology for ourselves, or finding what we want to consume, or, or whatever. Yeah, but that, that's, that's ignoring, I think, a, a, a huge part of what all makes that meaningful, which is the social aspect of it. It's not just, you know, something is being made somewhere, somehow and then it pops into existence and then there are a bunch of consumers there to appreciate it or enjoy it isn't that often
2: how it happens well like, like
3: you walk into most a forest people in the world well like a movie just pops into most people's existence and they never knew how it was made that's no true. that that is yeah that it's that is true but that's a very commoditized view of of any creation or any creativity or any any artistic endeavor um, i think some people appreciate some works of art just for the end product you know because it's amazing it's entertaining it it, uh, it, has, it 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 makes them feel a certain way or whatever and it has nothing to do with them reflecting on the process by which it was made or you know um the, the context in which it was made or something but a lot of other art uh is is important and powerful for those other reasons for the social context and or for the the fact that just a human being did it. I mean I've I've seen pieces of art where the actual thing in and of itself, if there was no context, I would say, oh that's really interesting. But then I think like wow a human being did this. And that's what really well, we can brand algorithmic art you know as created
2: by humans and people might not be able to tell the difference. Already there was an article on I believe in PR where they posted poetry generated by neural nets, and part of the article was asking people to guess which one was created by the algorithms and which one wasn't. And we're at the point where you can't tell which poetry was created by algorithms and which wasn't. I think, I mean, all that's based on human artists. You know, it it comes from humans. That says a lot about poetry.
1: Right? (laughs) I don't think it does. I don't think
2: it does. I think we're very close to the point where we create music where people won't be able to tell the difference
0: either. I think I've come up to a solution. I have a solution. I, everybody, don't freak out. We got this. We got this. I think the the and I I don't mean I mean I am I joking? No, I'm not joking. I think we're, <laughs> sometimes I don't even know sometimes, but I think I think it's it's gonna get to the point where like we're all gonna have to decide well well what does it mean to work? Um, well, I guess I guess we'll just have to. Or let me let me go back to this. Um, Human beings are the most intelligent thing in the universe that we know of. And that we know of, right? You know, we, we don't know it, for the most part even the dumbest person, you know, is smarter than a snail, for sure. For sure. We could we can all agree on that, right? And not a dolphin. Man. Not a dolphin. Well, man, <laughs> there's some dumb people out there for sure. But here's the thing, even even them will have to at some point when they have nothing else to do, no job to keep them busy, um they they will have to f- or, let's put it this way, I think that human beings are so smart, if given the right circumstances, if you are allowed to have, to be at the, pit, at the tip of Maslow's Pyramid, um, where you don't have to worry about housing, you don't have to worry about healthcare, where you're well-educated, where all of a sudden, when, when all of a sudden you have to fulfill these, these greater needs, um, because machines will be doing all those things for you, um, then I think what's left for us to do is to create art for ourselves. But but in a sense, I think what we're left with is to find meaning on our own. You know, what is what does it mean to be alive? What is what is give, what gives you purpose and meaning just individually? Like really. I think it has to go down to this. I feel like it's a more like the solution to all this is not political. It's not. It. I think it's a philosophical. Because this techno- this technological revolution is going to lead us into a path where, like, I can't think of a political solution to what's going to happen that we can all agree on. It's going to have to be something so fundamental th- that it comes down to your very core. Like, what does it mean to be alive? Because all of a sudden there's nothing else to do. And then you have a whole metaverse to explore that question and you have all these tools to explore those questions and you can become an artist or you can become a porn star or you can become a dolphin or you can become whatever, a toaster, whatever you want, you have a whole metaverse to do it. You know, I think, I think that's the point that we'll have for every person out there, you'll have each one of them will have their own individual answer. There's no one big... I mean, it comes back to the question
2: I like to ask everyone in VR, which is... And we're going to party. Well, that too. Yeah. Um, if reality... Can be anything, what should it be? Like, if we're now trying to create reality, our own reality, we have more and more and more control over our own reality with every year, then what should it be?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, nobody knows, obviously, like, what, what the best thing is. So, the, all we can do is all experiment and try to figure it out and try to make some progress. And the, the best case scenario is, you know, we no longer have to work and we all just try to figure out what reality should be like.
3: I, I, I sometimes have a contrarian um, view of that. I think a lot of what makes existence meaningful is a striving and struggle against restraints and, and limitations. And that's what sometimes gives meaning to the things that we do, even though they might, in and of themselves, be n- mundane. We and if we have unlimited power, you can break your legs right now. You struggle against that. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Well, <laughs> That's, asked, that's not a joke jo- I have no. to
1: ask, okay, so about your background with your this having this viewpoint, like, did you have a lot of struggle um, throughout, like, your childhood and growing up
3: well, yeah, I, I dealt with some some illnesses growing up that kind of, you know, threw, threw a wrench in what would be considered, like, a normal childhood, so I, it does give me a little bit of perspective on these things and I was just about to say to, to James, you know, a lot of people rationalize terrible things that happen to them and put a positive spin on it because they have to, you know, develop a lot of resiliency and character to get over them and that has side benefits for who they become as a person and their lives and and uh, it tends to pay dividends in other areas of their lives. So, you know, sometimes you hear people say like, oh, you know, it sounds crazy but, you know fighting cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. And like, of course, who would wish cancer on anybody or would want to get cancer? But some people who have beaten cancer say that because they're like, well, it made me grow as a person in, in, a, in a sense that I'm a much better person now than I was before. Um, and going back to the original point, if we live in a world like a Star Trek world where there's instant gratification, we no longer have to deal with constraints, we can trick our brains into thinking that we can have and, and, and experience anything that our heart uh, desires, then it does really come right down to core philosophical ar- arguments of the meaning of existence. Because I don't think human beings have ever been put in that position where we didn't win- we didn't have to struggle against limits and then rationalize that struggle in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, people who are thinking about um, uh, extending lifespans indefinitely like run up against the same problem. It's like, okay, then what? You know, it's like we we have all of these desires. We have all of these uh, these passions and these goals that drive us. Uh, and some of them are very base, but some of them are are more noble. And uh, at the end of the day, though, it's the context in which we live. And if we didn't have to deal with that context, what exactly, how exactly would we navigate our lives and our existence? It's, it's, a, it's an open question. I, I don't. I think some people might be comfortable just being a philosopher for the rest of their lives and contemplating existence, but some people would go crazy. <laughs> <laughs> what would you want to do? What would you want to do? I, I can't say for certain how I, how I would respond to a situation like that.
0: Charity, what would you do assuming you have an infinite metaverse to explore for the rest of your existence? What would you do with the rest of your time?
1: Where I didn't have to work. Don't have to work?
0: Yeah, yeah. Don't have to work. Don't worry worry about food or shelter or health. How would you spend the rest of your life?
1: And everyone else has the same thing. Like there's nobody anywhere that has want. Yeah,
0: the machines that's taking care of everything.
1: that's that's the big point you're making well yeah
3: it's like heaven it's like heaven or paradise or whatever it's like everyone talks about oh you know we want to go to heaven there's mm-hmm. a very short story about this called uh the
2: metamorphosis and then what? prime intellect
0: oh god that's you know, such it's a good really book.
2: weird it's like really weird someone told me to read it and i was like why did they tell me to read this and then i got through the whole thing and i was like oh this was actually really great but it starts off really weird um, but it's exactly this basically an AI takes over the rules are no one can die no one can harm anyone else and the AI has to listen to whatever you want so basically people each have control over their own reality and the AI enforces that um, and so you know it, it brings up sort of these questions of well what would that look like and it looks totally different for every person and,
1: hmm. and
2: every, you know but the, this one group of people, um, there are called death jockeys and they sign contracts where they give up control of their reality for periods and let someone else do the worst things imaginable to them because they've Gotten bored with everything else yeah, and so it's like a sport and it, it, There are professional, you know people who do the horrible things and there are professional people who are the victims of these horrible things and then people watch and, and, and no, they just experience it they just They just do it to experience it. So this
1: is kind of like that whole like hostile movie thing where it's like, you know, these super wealthy people are so bored with having everything. So like they get their kicks from torturing people kind of.
2: Yeah. But this, but in this reality, it's totally consensual. No one can do it against anyone else's will. I mean, that's how reality is structured. So huh. the only way to do it is for someone to consent to say, I sign a contract saying you can do whatever you want to me and I don't have any control over what's gonna happen and I can't stop it for this period of time. Hmm. But the AI always enforces that no one can
1: actually die. Oh, so you can just like you can just be in a lot of pain, but yeah. you can't die. Yeah.
2: You can go through those experiences, but no one can die.
1: I don't think that I would go to that end of it, but (laughs) it's a little extreme. (laughs) I could definitely see maybe living a life of just pure hedonism and just doing yeah, and
2: in the book that's what most people do. Yeah, you know, and they go and visit people who are their friends, and you know they have crazy parties, and but you know a few small groups go to these extremes, and I I think you would see something like that where different people do extremely different
3: things. I I worry about that because I love sushi and uh, Same here. and I try and eat it every every chance I get and when I spend a lot of money on food I and and I don't have a great experience I always say damn how much sushi could I have bought with that money
1: you know Cause i know
3: I would have loved that a lot more I' just gone through a Japanese restaurant but you know, I know if I was ever given the opportunity to eat sushi every day I'd get used to it and it wouldn't be special anymore and I would lose my enthusiasm for it. And I think, you know, we see across the spectrum of human experience that whenever you give somebody too much of a good thing, they will <laughs> abuse it, not all the time, but a lot of the time, they'll abuse it, and then it will change, the relationship to that thing will change to the extent that now that thing is does not have the character that it used to once have. And it's no longer special, and it's no longer positive. It might actually be a burden or uh, something harmful.
1: Imagine so. a lifetime of that, like from the time you're born, your entire life, just like everything you want all the time. Like I can imagine. how do you
3: decide and... what you want? Like, is it the first thing that pops into your head? Like, what, what experiences form the? Framework in your head of of the decision-making of what what exactly it is that you desire if the first thing that you can think of you have It's like how do you develop a set of values that inform your wants and needs? I I don't see how that's possible.
0: Well, I mean you wouldn't be living in a vacuum you would be living in a hopefully somewhat random universe where things would happen to you and you would be able to categorize
3: that from here and has a history and well, then we're not talking about like being our own little gods in our own little personal universes. Which then there's there are these other external forces that are more powerful than us that we still have to react to, and in which case then we're still keeping some of what makes us, you know, we're we're keeping some of uh, what is familiar as the human experience. But mm-hmm. if we get rid of that, if we get rid of all of that, then I don't know what we call ourselves at that point.
0: Let me ask you this: you you've you, you've been thinking about VR most, mo- more than most people on planet Earth. Okay. Um, how far, how deep do you think this rabbit hole goes? You know, where does VR lead us to? I've, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, or whatever timeline you can think of?
1: So, I honestly, to me, one of the most exciting things about VR and AR is the fact that children who are born now are going to have a completely different relationship to reality and a more fluid view of what it is. And I personally am someone who believes that to a certain extent, like we're already living in a simulated reality that we're kind of creating what we see around us through our own perception. And that if we could actually really see what was truly around us, it would probably look nothing like how we're all perceiving it. And I believe that if you took children from when they were little and you redefined what reality was at a very young age, that they would be able to do things in this reality that you and I can't, because we didn't have that early redefinition of it. They'll be less constrained. Exactly. And they might be able to manipulate things that we can't manipulate.
0: What do you think will be the effect on society or, or humanity the day when these headsets... Um, you'll be able to put them on and you won't be able to tell the difference between reality and virtual reality. And all of a sudden, millions of people will take off the headset and the first thing will come to their mind will be, holy fuck, what is reality all of a sudden? Like, what, how do you think humanity is going to change then? I mean, and we're going in that direction, it seems like, right? It's just a matter of time. Mm-hmm.
1: Read the book, Wool. Whoa. Oh, well. Can you make a list of all the books I should read? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah for sure, for sure, for
0: sure. <laughs> but what's your what's your theory? What, what do you think? What, would, what do you hypothesize would happen?
1: I mean, so I'm somebody who... I would have to say that I'm a cynical optimist. Like, I'm cynical... In the way that people like treat each other day to day right now like I think we're really really horrendous to one another mm-hmm. but I think that we have the potential to treat each other better we're just so programmed into seeing the world the way it is right now that a lot of people can't really see around it and I think that if we could kind of show people another like another reality that is possible and kind of make them question what reality is i think that we would start to redefine our relationships to one another i mean i would like to think that's what would happen
0: we're gonna leave it on that note because that's (laughs) that's a really good note to leave on charity how can people stay in touch follow up with what you're doing and all that good stuff
1: um so i'm on twitter at charity loves vr that's also my YouTube page where I'm uploading my different projects that I've been working on. Um, I also have a website, CharityEverett.com, or you can just friend me on Facebook. I'm always keeping up with what's happening in VR.
0: Awesome. Um, James, Jordan, how can people stay in touch and follow up with what you're doing? At James Blaha on Twitter. At James Blaha on Twitter. Jordan? I don't believe in social media. He doesn't <laughs> believe in
1: social
3: media. <laughs> no. I, I have... I... I I don't have a Twitter presence, but I should probably get one, right? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean and if you if, if, right. if you want to be with the
0: cool Only kids. If you want to sell something.
3: No. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a good that's a way of saying it, James. That's a way of saying it. <laughs> um Yeah, um get in touch with James and if it's uh, he'll tell me about it. Okay, cool. <laughs> awesome. Thanks everybody. And
0: BAM